0: Welcome to Free Thoughts. I'm Aaron Powell. And I'm Trevor Burrus. Joining us today is Candice Dalmas. She's an assistant professor of philosophy and political science at Northeastern University and the associate director of the Politics, Philosophy, and Economics program. Today, we're discussing her new book, A Duty to Resist, When Disobedience Should Be Uncivil. Welcome to Free Thoughts.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: Before we turn to uncivil disobedience, let's start with civil disobedience, which has kind of a a robust theoretical history to it. So what is civil disobedience?
1: So civil disobedience um, is – has been – Canonized uh, in a way by John Rawls in the 60s. And at the time, other thinkers were also putting their mind to it and reacting to the activism, you know, the pro civil rights and and anti Vietnam War activism going on at the time in the United States. But John Rawls kind of um, crystallized. in his theory, a lot of what people took to be the requirements of uh, uh, civil disobedience. So for a breach of law to count as an act of civil disobedience, uh, it's, it, it must be conscientious, open, public, nonviolent. Uh, the agent must be willing to accept the punishment. And there are also other uh, requirements such as that the actor should make an appeal to widely accepted principles of political morality and aim to reform and nothing, uh, more than that and, um, endorse the system, the, the legal system's legitimacy as well as the moral duty to obey the law and kind of demonstrate that endorsement, that commitment by disobeying civilly. So in all all these ways. So that's kind of the the crux of what um, civil disobedience is supposed to look like. And um, I should say officials and lawyers also seem to have this uh, standard liberal account of civil disobedience, which, as you can tell, is pretty narrow and demanding. So, if you, I mean, I can say more about what civil disobedience is seen to be now, you know, decades later, but that's kind of the standard, and I, I think it remains uh, um, somewhat faithful to what people take to be the central features of civil disobedience.
2: Did Rawls presume, or in then those who kind of write in his tradition about civil disobedience, did he presume that there was at least a prima facie duty to obey the law, or, a, or at least a presumption in favor of obeying the law?
1: Uh, this is a matter of scholarly disagreement. I think he did. And why do I think he did? Because he said so in his text. The that's reason good. why some people, um, disagree. So he did say, I, I, uh, assume as uh, in need of no argument that there is a moral duty to obey the law in societies like ours. Um, and, and he said that early, like in, uh, I think that's from like 1964. So, you know. Um, if not earlier, so uh, uh, not like uh, post-Civil Rights Act or anything. So the reason why some people disagree is because um, um, if there's a duty to obey the law, it only arises in near-just, legitimate societies and those um, are well-ordered, um, governed by the good principles of justice, like the ones he endorses. And uh, in those, inju- there may be injustices that arise in virtue of the society being governed by democratic arrangements, but um, these injustices can't be so grave and egregious. Otherwise, it just isn't a near just society, a legitimate society. But so, on the basis of his account of the principles of justice and what he says of the near just society, scholars say he, that the duty to obey the law didn't arise, and so that he can't possibly have thought that there was one.
0: That I, I confess, when I read that part in your book and you mentioned that line from Rawls, and then and then you mentioned the 1964 date that he wrote this, um, it was it was rather shocking, to be honest, that that Rawls would in the United States in nineteen sixty four look around and say this society is predominantly just or or so just that we don't even really need to argue about the question of its its justice. Um, and and I, I wondered about that in light of these these other theories like so that this kind of general theory of civil disobedience the the narrowness of it the, the the civility it calls for the kind of like don't rock the boatness of it seems like it's the the theory of disobedience that would come from someone who feels pretty comfortable in a tenure track position at Harvard um, a, you know, someone who's not really oppressed, not really suffering injustices and so kind of wishes. you know, it's similar to the the reactions of a lot of conservatives about football players kneeling at at games that you know, it's okay for you to protest, but please don't do it in a way that you know, upsets my enjoyment of the game or makes me slightly <laughs> uncomfortable. Um, and so is this <clears throat> this predominant theory of of civil disobedience? is it one that is accepted by endorsed by kind of people on the other side of it like genuinely oppressed peoples and groups
1: yeah that's a that's a, a good question and a good way of setting it up so like you i i so i'm not all that interested in the scholarly debate about what what rawls thought and what his theory implied exactly about his beliefs and so on but uh i I do feel that the most straightforward explanation for why you would believe that there is a moral duty to obey the law is something like um, a moral blindness bred by privilege. So yeah, that's all I say about that. But um, on the other end, uh, so on the side of practitioners of civil disobedience, of activists, um, no, uh, there is no endorsement of uh, such a narrow and demanding and um, theory of civil disobedience, especially in so far as it is kind of tailored to uh, deter resistance and delegitimize dissent. So, uh, the, and that's part of what motivated, um, the book for me. It's that what activists talk about when they engage in civil disobedience is their responsibility and their duty to disobey unjust law and to collectively organize and change the systems that um, support these laws. So um, they do not draw the lines that theorists have drawn. Uh, where, so for instance, the uh, one that is taken very um, seriously, that is that that tends to appear in all, um, I mean, in, in really in most accounts of civil disobedience, most recently, uh, uh, Martha Nussbaum also uh, made it part of her account. It's the idea that you must be willing to accept punishment. And so just to take that example, activists on the ground have all sorts of practical and tactical reasons to uh, not try to evade arrest and to uh, accept the legal sanctions that are brought onto them, but demonstrating respect for the system and their sincere endorsement of the duty to obey the law is not one such reason. And uh, indeed, um, when they are... um, uh, when they are protesting and denouncing unjust conditions, there's no reason for them to uh, um, endorse the system or to express that endorsement. So they have I mean, of course, it's true that there are activists whose campaigns that. Um, look modeled a little bit on that kind of account. So, you know, the Good Friday march and the freedom rides and the lunch counter sit-ins, they do satisfy the uh, outward signs of civility. And I say outward because, again, I don't think that the agents involved in these display the internal attitudes that we think are a part of civil disobedience. So, they don't accept the narrowness, and neither do they accept the duty to obey the law and the idea that um civil disobedience could only be permissible under neural circumstances given the general duty.
0: Should disobedience then always be civil? Uh, yeah, so
1: <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, not on my account. Um, so so uh, let me say a little bit about what how I understand uncivil disobedience. So um so There's a lot of critiques of the Rawlsian Standard account, and there are uh, many uh, theorists who have proposed much broader and inclusive concepts of civil disobedience, um, such that civility is reduced to... uh, Basically, communicativeness, just a willingness to, uh, to say something to the community, a sort of just political speech, really. Um, and, um, they discard the requirements of publicity, of uh, non-evasion of punishment, of uh, non-violence. And, um, uh, I, I, I believe that it's, uh, not all that helpful to go that route even if you want to be able to justify you know many kinds of protests so i kind of grant the standard account of civil disobedience just because i do believe that that's the way people understand it uh so i i take out the in, internal attitude requirements but i do keep this idea that publicity non evasion non-violence and i add a of force, which is decorum. So this idea of, you know, um, dignified behavior uh, in accordance with uh, social norms of respect or something like that. So that being um, civil disobedience, I understand uncivil disobedience as acts of principled breaking that violate these marks of civility. So by being either covert uh, or anonymous or uh, evasive, so where the agent uh, really tries hard to escape law enforcement and And punishment, um, violent, including so minimal uh, damage to private property or public property, or displays of force and sometimes uh, use of force as well, and or that are offensive. And disrespectful, blasphemous, etc. So the concept of uncivil disobedience in the book is kind of this um, large umbrella cluster concept, uh, which it's appropriate to use for any uh, act of principle law breaking that would violate one of these marks of civility and so so it, it really covers different kinds of things some of which just don't have very much in common because uh, to me so you know the work of um, so uh, members of the sanctuary movement who provide illegal uh, aid to unauthorized migrants, uh, government whistleblowers, guerrilla art uh, you know uh, female and suffragettes and this kind of radical feminist protest uh, they, these are all examples the, the anonymous distributed denial of service these are all examples of uncivil disobedience, in my view. Um, So they're very different. So yes, I think that sometimes uncivil disobedience is called for. Um, And sometimes it's called for because it's really effective to doing the kinds of things it sets out to do, such as helping people, uh, say in the case of the sanctuary uh, workers, um, and uh, doing it, you know, or providing illegal abortions before road, that kind of thing. So they, it, it's necessary for what you're trying to achieve. So if you were to uh, do it publicly and civilly, you would fail at what you're trying to do. And, and if um, what you're trying to do is uh, called for, morally good, uh, a in pursuit of a principle worthy of public recognition or something like that, then uh, you ought to do it in this way, uncivilly, covertly, evasively, et cetera. And then there's also a very different non-instrumental defense of of uncivil disobedience, which looks at uncivil disobedience, being uh, at, at those types of uncivil disobedience that are communicative, that purport to express something. And, um, and the idea there is that in some cases— um, Uh, it's appropriate to express um, disrespect for the system, so a judgment that the uh, society is failing you, that you are not treated as an equal member of the community, and so on. And I think that there are uh, some all sorts of types of uncivil disobedience that can do that better than civil disobedience. So even though in these cases there would, you know, champions of civil disobedience would still say, well, you have to do it civilly. I think that un- incivility in those cases. Um, just models and expresses uh, better the the enact, uh, you know, judgment or enact emotion like anger or grief or some such.
2: Trevor In the difference between principled and unprincipled, uh, civil uncivil disobedience. Do, does it matter what the principle is or what counts as a principle? So right now in Venezuela, there's... A lot of disobedience going on against a regime that is systematically star- have been starving many people in Venezuela and the people who are in the streets and they're committing you know acts of vandalism and violence. But their principle might be that they're starving as opposed to some philosophical principle against the ideals of the government. Does that does that count as a principle? Being being starved by your government, I guess.
1: Yeah, that is. I, I thought you were going to ask whether they have to really think of themselves as engaged in resistance. But you, you just mean like it's this straightforward kind of nec- claim of necessity, right? Like I am, I am starving. Yeah. I am dying. The government is oppressing us, and this cannot go on any longer. That's yeah, is that right?
2: Exactly. But does that is that a principle?
1: Yes, that sounds like a principle. So I, yes, I use I use a, a for a liberal. Grounds. I mean, so four grounds that are commonly used to support the duty to obey the law to defend uh, civil and uncivil disobedience in the book, and so that's one that would feed, fit well, like the Samaritan duty, right? So this idea of uh, so extreme oppression, I think, is a, um, a, a good fit for a Samaritan accounts of resistance because they're about um, this uh, duty of rescue um, and. and And um, so, duty to to protest um, against um, this constant endangerment of people, right? So, through a government that starves its people, or or, um, things of that nature. Do you
2: have to have a? Is there a duty to make sure that you're correct? It, it would seem that, you know, someone who just has an idea one day uh, that the government is oppressing them in order to be justified in your uncivil disobedience, you you should be at least correct in that they are in fact oppressing you uh, and that it is wrong what they're doing. So how do people then have a corollary duty to investigate the questions of whether or not the, the government is actually oppressing them and whether or not it's immoral?
1: Yeah, I think they mm-hmm. do. I think that... Um... Um, If you take seriously these political obligations of uh, resistance to injustice, uh, you do have to also think about—so I I think this creates um, second-order duties to exercise due diligence in one's reasoning, to be informed, to be careful, and to work with others. Um, So— there's, you know, a, a zealot individuals. Um, is is not exactly where this is supposed to go. Um, so I, I I think that uh, vigilance and ambivalence are uh, good kinds of uh, epistemic virtues to uh, to show in this respect. And always thinking, seeking inf- information, although you know, all of these are obviously not easily discharged but uh there there's definitely duties to exercise prudent deliberation when one is uh, looking at um um well uh, as the more the more collateral harms could be uh, could in, could be uh, produced the the weightier the duty to uh, exercise due care and deliberation
0: so it seems it seems relatively straightforward um and at least in these parts somewhat non-controversial to say that we have in certain circumstances a right to disobey. But that's that's a rather different thing from saying that we actually have a a duty to disobey. And so what do you mean by us having a duty and is this what kind of duty is it? Is it like a like a perfect duty like it's you know we absolutely have to do it it's a moral wrong to not do it or is it like an imperfect duty in the sense that You know, it would be it would be good if you did it, but we're not going to condemn you for not.
1: Yeah. So let me just say something about what the right to disobey is usually understood as and it could be understood a little differently. <clears throat> Excuse me. Depending on the um, on the series. so early on, people like Ronald Dworkin thought that there was something like a right to civilly disobey, and that right was grounded in um, uh, political participation and rights and the, um, the 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 privilege and right to follow one's own judgment. Um, and um, and not be forced into uh, obeying a law that really violates our deepest conscience, but he didn't think that that right uh, granted a right against state interference. So it was just that yeah you you could do the right because you know in certain cases uh, disobeying is the right thing because you have other duties than your duties to your state then um, you uh, are permitted to disobey but certainly that doesn't mean that the state cannot uh, prosecute and punish you although it should be lenient uh, when it does that. but more recently uh, some theorists of civil disobedience like uh, David Lefkowitz and Kimberly Brownlee and William Smith, I've defended a moral right to civil disobedience, which actually grants a claim right against the government interference, so that you shouldn't be punished or penalized. Well,
0: uh, at least not punished,
1: uh, by the state. And so that that's what they mean uh, by right there. So in one case it's a permission, in this latter case it's a stronger claim right. Um and i i need to say that so the the i don't believe there's a, a claim right to uncivil disobedience given this broad concept i just laid out right which includes all sorts of uh, impermissible and harmful and violent kind of actions so i'm not interested in in defending uh, such thing as this point but what do i mean by the duty so, so again, and I, I tried to shift right the focus on duty to obey the law, occasional permission to disobey. To this, no. Uh, if you're, if you think that there's a duty to obey the law, the very grounds on which you uh, base this duty actually yield obligations to resist injustice under certain unjust political conditions. So, this duty, it's it's usually. Um, it's, it's an imperfect duty that you can discharge that, that at your discretion. Um, so you are not necessarily to, uh, devote your life to doing that. Um, but you can't also do nothing. And, um, it's so it's um, de- depending on the arguments that generate the, the duty to resist, some of them actually really, really demand action and really prohibit inaction. So, for instance, uh, the argument based on fairness says that you just cannot benefit and continue to benefit from a, an, an unjust, discriminatory, or exploitative legal system. So, it's somewhat up to you how you're going to discharge that, but you just cannot. Uh, continue to enjoy the benefits, right? So there's they, they, they all have different kinds of weight. Mm-hmm. Same with the Samaritan duty. There could be immediate uh, and really weighty obligations to do something to rescue someone, even if it's illegal. And then uh, when it comes to a more general duty to do something to reform the system that generates uh, grave injustices that imperil people. Then I think there, you know, it's, it could be a matter of joining an existing movement, and uh, uh, so so there, there are different uh, degrees and natures of the duty. But I mean, um, yeah, that, I hope that helps a little bit.
0: Yeah, and I think that provides yeah, okay. a a good opportunity to turn to the the heart of the book. Um, and I'll say this was this was the part of the book that was drew my attention initially because I the. The question of political obligation, political authority, has—it's—I've been fascinated by it for quite a long time, and give—you know—every year I give talks to every Cato intern class about um, the the problem of political obligation, and and the theories that you discuss are the theories that I talk to the interns about. But I like—you know—I think most people who do stuff on this topic, it's it's assessing whether these theories actually ground political obligations or political authority and so does this particular theory give rise to an obligation to obey the law and i argue you know most of them don't but but i but you take this i think really interesting alternative approach which is to say if these actually work as grounding political obligations they in fact create obligations not just to obey in some instances, but in some, and in fact, I mean, it seems like in many, um, a positive duty, as you've just described, to to disobey based on the same underlying principles, which is a, a super interesting way to approach this. And so I thought maybe we could just walk through the the four theories that you talk about in the book, um, and maybe you can just tell us, give us the brief you know, thumbnail sketch of what the theory is and how it's used to justify a an obligation to obey the law, and then that, that pivot into you know how it can be used to justify an obligation to disobey and what sort of obligations those are. Um, so can maybe we start with the, the kind of duty of justice, the duty to support yeah, sure. justice? Can I say
1: something first?
0: Sure. So
1: I, I tr- I'm hoping that the argument convinces not just proponents of political obligations, so people who hold one of those theories, but also anarchists and other kinds of skeptics about political obligation, right? Because it's not about endorsing the theory; it's about just finding the ground it's based on sure. uh, compelling enough to do some work, right? So, so yeah, I hope. I hope. <laughs> I hope
2: um, well, I imagine the anarchists are already all for. So, Uncivil disobedience. So,
1: <laughs> yeah, this is not <laughs> be a problem to overcome in the first place, <laughs> right? <laughs> All right. So the natural duty of justice. So it 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 may be at this point uh, one of the most uh, prominent theory to uh, 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 on to explain the duty to obey the law. So uh, according to Rawls, the duty of justice has two parts. Right. It requires supporting just institutions by complying with those that exist and apply to us and it also requires assisting in the establishments of uh, just institutions where there are none and um it's used by uh, different theorists in different ways but um the, all uh champions of a duty of justice based political obligation kind of agree that the point of the duty of justice is to address individuals as free and equal citizens and so it cannot obligate them to maintain um, legal and socio-political conditions that deny people that free and equal status. So it's tied to democratic legitimacy, at least in this way, and um, and it requires, the, so not just equal rights, but it kind of also prohibits unequal power advantages. And so so the idea was, well, if you like the duty of justice, you have this pretty demanding uh, standard of uh, uh, democratic legitimacy, and you will, you do think that like, injustice is so serious violations of this uh, free and equal status and, and uh, of um, the demand for equal power advantages or not, um, to problematic unequal power advantages to solve the duty to obey. So the idea is my account comes at this point in the in the lapses, right, of, uh, well, at least where the duty to obey is uh, flimsy or uh, hasn't has lapsed entirely. Uh, you can see that the duty of justice in part because of the second part, right, that requires establishing just arrangements, Um Permits or even requires you, right? Because it's about discharging this duty of justice. Um, it requires you to um, uh, do something to um, halt or prevent the ongoing rights violation or democratic deficits that are uh, that characterize the current system, and and work hard to uh, to to reform those and uh, put in place some institutions that would uh, truly. Um, uh, respect everyone's free and equal status.
2: So, uh, with So with an example of something that I would say violates this duty of justice or would give me a duty to disobey, the drug war uh, and, its, and its, of course, racist, classist history uh, seems to be one of these things that does not put people on equal footing and is something that could be resisted uh, even if you uh, obeyed, agreed with the duty of justice as a grounding for political obligation.
1: Yeah, that's right. That's a good example. So yeah, I, I actually um, identified five paradigmatic violations, so injustices uh, that, that violate the uh, duty of justice. And um the, the, some of which involve um so government wrongdoing, official misconduct and things that are hidden from the public, but others have to do with just this disrespect of uh citizens' free and equal status or of their um um
2: of their rights. Of their rights, to, to of their I mean, rights. Yeah. yeah.
1: So 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 that would work there and Um, The kinds of disobedience that uh, it would uh, warrant. So I I look there at like education, protest, cover disobedience, vigilantism and whistleblowing. And so at a minimum, you know, yeah, education and protest of the uh, current criminal justice system is warranted. Um,
2: Can I go break everyone out of jail and free them?
1: You know, (laughs)
2: um, I'll put a Batman suit on to make it look better. But can can I do that? (laughs) Would I be just? Would I be? Would I be doing a just action uh, under this theory if I did that?
1: I mean, I do think that mass incarceration is an egregious, heartbreaking injustice, and so I mean, you know, it. So in some way, I'm I'm interested in political action. And so I'm more interested in like bringing about the change, you know, uh, abolishing the three strikes rule, and um, just. Basically, reassessing everyone's, every single prisoner's uh, sentence because the overwhelming majority of them are completely excessive and unreasonable and disproportionate to the crime. Many of them are uh, given for crimes that shouldn't have been crimes in the first place and so on. So, yeah, the vigilantism I look at, since you mentioned uh, uh, Batman breaking uh, people out, p- breaking prisoners out of um, jail is a self-defensive kind of vigilantism of um, something like the Deacons for Defense and Justice were engaged in. So there were armed defense groups that were um, um, established during Jim Crow to protect uh, CORE and then other civil rights people from KKK violence. So, but... um, Yes.
0: <laughs> All right. Good. This yes, no question. Is at ease, but <laughs> so, so let me ask you then about another um, potential uh, uncivil disobedience. Um, at, at one point in the book, I think you're discussing like the Panama Papers um, or something like that. You, you mentioned that there's an injustice in people avoiding paying the amount of taxes that ideally they they are required to under the law, um, but it seems like, you know, if a, quite a lot of stuff that the government does is unjust, um, uh, quite a lot of, you know, especially like blowing up people overseas or imprisoning people in the drug war, or, um, or enforcing the kind of, you know, draconian uh, rules on immigration and so on, um, and all of that is funded by taxes. Um, and your taxes, you know, you can't – when you cut the check, you can't say, I only want to use this – I only want to use this money for the just stuff. Um, and so is it, is it principled uncivil disobedience to just say, like, I'm going to try to avoid to the greatest extent possible giving these people money that I know they're going to use for unjust activities?
1: Right, so I I don't even think I look at much tax uh, evasion, but there were in the 60s uh, numerous public campaigns of tax, conscientious tax evasion, that were uh, targeted at protesting the Vietnam War, especially. And I so so I would basically I would favor a public kind of campaign for tax evasion for all the reasons you just mentioned for I mean uh, um, targeting the causes you just mentioned um, because uh, there is so much. Tax evasion that is done uh, fraudulently and deceptively um, by people who put all their wealth um, in offshore banking accounts. I am not sure um, what I'm not sure what the Cato Institute thinks about <laughs> these kinds of crimes, but I do uh, think well, that's a real problem, uh, and uh, in part because it further um, it further consolidates and and worsens existing uh, economic disparities which are important because they mean unequal political power so but so so yes there's all sorts of uh, of uh, tax refusal that is especially in the in the U.S. tradition um, a recognized uh, form of, of protest, right? So, so the the rich tax evasion that the Panama Papers uh, were denouncing wasn't principled, I don't think. Although I I can imagine someone else interpretively seeing it as um, something like a kind of resistance to uh, a, a government that taxes, right? Um, so, Burrus,
2: th- that... <laughs> Jr.: It's feasible. I think sometimes if you, I don't think I think if your government I mean, for a lot of Cato people would say most of what the US government does is bad, so maybe if it's like over 50%, then withholding your taxes, it is at least keeping the government from doing bad things aside from uh, the arguments about the specific things, but I think withholding your taxes from Nazi Germany, even though Nazi Germany ran schools, is probably okay. Even even doing it that's through right. through Cayman Islands accounts.
1: So let's, yeah, that's another. I mean, it would be good to have the breakdown of like how uh, the way the which you know many countries do like breaking down the how your dollars are
0: used.
2: I want a receipt. You yeah, taxes. no, I want a receipt. I want to know how much of those bombs I paid for. I go, yeah, go, go and ask for <laughs> it
0: back. Yes. <laughs> so let's now I guess turn to the the fairness account. So what is that?
1: Okay, so the um, the duty of fair play again another um, pretty. Um common uh, ground for the duty to obey the law. So the, the duty of fair play requires reciprocating for benefits received or doing one's share in producing mutual benefits. And so fair play theorists of political obligation usually understand citizens as participating in this mutual beneficial, mutually beneficial cooperative scheme, right? So everyone has to do their share. Uh, the benefits that are produced are supposed to be, well, stability, Peace, rights protection, safe roads, clean water, military security, and that sort of thing. But the idea is that in order to produce, to provide these goods, um, it must be uh, the case that citizens comply with the law, pay their share of taxes, and so on. So um, producing the goods means sharing some of the burdens involved in the production of these goods. Um, And for fair play theorists, if these costs are reasonable and fairly distributed, everyone is morally bound to do their part in sustaining the state. So that's the, that's the, the, the theory and the, uh, the moral duties owed to fellow citizens and not to the state because of this norm of reciprocity at the heart of, uh, of fairness. And I use fairness and fair play interchangeably. And so, um, the, the way I used it is, um, so fairness doesn't bind, uh, citizens to cooperate with exploitative or harmful scheme of coordination. So if the if the cooperative scheme that a that, that society doesn't distribute the burdens and benefits fairly or imposes um, undue harms, even on non-members in my view, but you can also just look at the uh, unfair distribution of burdens and benefits within the society. So it won't trigger the, the duty to obey. Uh, or if you're, yeah, it, it wouldn't trigger the duty. So that's something that fair play theorists should agree on, right? So that it would only work uh, when the distributes and burdens are reason, when the burdens are reasonable and burdens and benefits are fairly distributed. But um, I go further and argue that under certain circumstances, fairness in fact prohibits beneficiaries of exploitative or harmful schemes to cooperate. So um, the idea is that. Um, it, so it, the the argument rests on an analysis of fairness, prohibition of free riding, right? So um, fairness prohibits you to uh, free ride because you have to do your share uh, and um, shoulder the burdens involved in the production of the goods that are mutually beneficial. And what I argue is that benefiting from an exploitative or harmful scheme um, involves the same deontic wrong as free riding. Um, And it's something like an objectionable arrogation of privilege or uh, wrongful exploitation, depending on how you cash out free riding. And then the next, step is to say well so how does one cease benefiting from an unjust uh, scheme of coordination and so i i uh, have an argument by elimination where i look at like exit or restitution and i settle on um resistance for the sake of reform so you have to like change that system not just exit it though it's a possibility though not not a desirable one but it's a possibility Uh, restitution is a Uh, insufficient or if it's really sufficient that means you reformed it so basically it's all about radically reforming um, the the unjust scheme to make it so that you're no longer objectionably um, um, privileged under that system so it it applies to the beneficiaries right and so yeah resistance is then instrumental in this uh, radical reform effort and it's and it's a duty there
2: well, there are a lot of people. I, you know, I a was a white male who uh, <clears throat> grew up in middle class life. Uh, there's a lot of people like me who have benefited from a lot of of unfair injustices, but th- which is which would be hard to. I mean, somebody to just stop being a beneficiary. You could imagine someone, you know, like William Peter Kensington VI, whose entire wealth is based off of a family that maybe was involved in the slave trade, and, and that that person should maybe stop benefiting from his family's wealth. But if you're more of a general beneficiary, how do you stop doing that?
1: Yeah, you wanted me to tell you everything you have to do now?
2: <laughs> <All> <laughs> yeah, right. yeah. So is. yeah,
1: you, as a man, you know, you're benefiting from patriarchy. As a middle class person, you're benefiting uh, from um, the economic system. As a white person, you're benefiting from a racist system and so on. Um, so you, as to, being aware of um, the kinds of benefits you have under the system, and being aware that these benefits on, are, are unearned, unearned, um, and being aware that others are unduly suffering and not getting the goods that you're getting, is already important. And I say it matters because if you really had no clue, then you may not be bound. So, um, so, but if you know. And there, uh, th- so you might say, well, but even if I know, if I have no way of refusing these privileges, you know, I'm not a willing uh, recipient of this. So, um, does that still make me duty bound? And um, I think I think it does because uh, you are still a knowing beneficiary, and just insofar as there are things you could do to at least. Um, Uh, So even, you know, even the little things of, um, um, yes so of like you know calling out racist and sexist jokes and that sort of thing so the kind of everyday resistance that feminists have been talking about for decades um, is already important and you know how you raise your children and all that so so there's actually a variety of things you can do even short of you know abolishing these big structures that are supposed to uh, give you the privileges so um, yeah that's that's the the gist there all right
0: That when you're discussing this in the book, you you talk about one of the ways that we can address this unfairness is um, through solidarity, which then you distinguish from being an ally um, and and seem to say that solidarity is better than being an ally. What's the difference between those two?
1: Yeah, so first I say th- I, so you know I told you the that reciprocity is at the heart of of fairness and this uh, prohibition on free riding. So the idea is that the reciprocity. At the core of fairness supports obligations of solidarity because it's about these mutual benefits and furthermore if there's an existing movement from which you will benefit right so if that movement is successful you will benefit whether you're a beneficiary or, or a victim of that unjust system You will benefit because you would know if you're the beneficiary, you would no longer be in a morally dubious uh, position. If you're a victim, you would have better prospects of life and so on. So in that sense, it's something like um, its own uh, cooperative scheme that produces goods. And so you can free ride on that. I mean, it's the whole, you know anti-scab argument in, uh, in strikes. So, um, so, so that's what the, the solidarity argument uh, looks like. And yeah, so I, I just, um, I drew this distinction. Uh, as I drew this distinction, I'm following uh, some um, trans feminists who have denounced the kind of uh, theater of allyhood that uh, goes on, and that's especially visible in social media, according to which uh, people declare their, you know, they profess their their faith and the, and their social justice warrior cred, but actually, actually don't do the right thing with the people they're they're uh, purporting to be an allies of. And so the distinction um, is, is one between doing and identifying as. So that's what it's meant to capture. I mean, you know, being an ally is great, but uh, the idea was um, uh, this: you know, I am an ally can be meaningless and can may not be followed by actually um, and doing the right thing and and engaging in a social movement and activism and so on. That that was the the kind of the critique I was um, uh,
0: presenting. Okay, well, let's then. I guess we'll turn to Samaritanism. OK,
1: so that's that is not a prominent uh, theory of political obligation. Um, it's uh, so Kit Wellman at uh, first put it forward, uh, as far as I can tell. And it's a kind of a mix of the Hobbesian state of nature meets uh, fair play theory. So his idea is that, is the idea that the, it's the Samaritan duty that um, um, binds us to obey the law because uh, it, being in the state, um, so, by obeying the law, we are rescuing others who are in peril or, di- or dire need. Um, and those people, so, so sorry, <laughs> the idea is that by achieving political stability and getting us out of the state of nature, the state has rescued everyone from this violence and chaos which we, we, we would otherwise live under. And so the state has a right to coerce me because it's saving everyone. But um, my compliance with the law must be necessary for the success of the uh, uh, state's—so everyone's compliance with the law should be necessary um, to the success of the state's Samaritan mission. But given that any particular individual's compliance with the law is not, in fact, necessary, it brings in considerations of fairness, so non-consequentialist considerations of fairness, to say that— Everyone has a, a, a duty to do their fair share of what he calls the communal Samaritan chore of rescuing others from the perils of the state of nature. So, so that's the the theory. It's a it's a rescue from the state of nature and the Samaritan rescue plus fairness gets the gets the duty to obey the law.
2: So, in this one, it seems like if the state uh, is failing to rescue you from the state of nature in some way, that might give you a duty to disobey in that situation.
1: Right. So and that was that. Yes. So th- there's that. So but but you know, injustices don't necessarily amount to um, a uh, fall back into the state of nature, quote unquote. Right. But what I was interested in was um, one. So, so some Samaritan arguments for uh, obligations of um Disobedience when laws prohibit Samaritan rescue. So, of course, the paradigmatic case I uh, had in mind was the 1850 Fugitive Slave Law Act, which I think, you know, you have a duty to, uh, to disobey, even if it's the law of the land. Um, and then I um, was also interested in, uh, current anti-immigration policies, some of which use exactly the same language as the Fugitive Slave Law Act, actually, of like, prohibitions on, um, concealing, harboring, shielding, or attempting to conceal, shield, or harbor unauthorized aliens, that sort of language. So, uh, there's that. But then, um, I, I was interested in, uh, more general political obligations of resistance, besides these one-off uh, Samaritan rescues that would involve breaking the law, because I don't think that these are extremely controversial anyway. And and there, um, I, I I looked at more complex situations in which social and political conditions produce. So not just laws that prevent rescue, but what I call persistent Samaritan perils. And uh, these are cases where injustice generates, enables, or aggravates Samaritan perils. Uh, So making them pervasive and and frequent, right? And so where the obligations that are generated on the um, part of um, citizens who I think are like passers-by who witness these persistent Samaritan perils, is really to do something about the structural um, uh, system, so the, uh, the unjust institutions or unjust sets of laws that generate these, uh, these perils. And I have in mind, um, you know, Jim Crow Um refugees or I I talk about women in India and in uh, cities who fear greatly for their safety in public spaces. I talk about the urban ghettos. I talk a little bit about the prison. Um, So uh, the idea is that there you have unjust laws that um, uh, are such that they always put a certain kind of people at risk and their people, as so citizens, have not just one-off obligations of rescue, but should do something about it politically to um, halt and change the laws.
0: So we're we're running a bit low on time, but I wanted to make sure we got we didn't leave one of these theories off. So maybe we can quickly do um, the association or membership account as, as our final one.
1: Great. Okay. Yeah. So that's the one I I look at. There's many uh, associative theories of political obligation. And um, I I chose Ronald Dworkin's uh, latest argument for political obligation, which she uh, um, exposed in Justice for Hedgehogs and which draws on dignity. And it's such a it has such great currency in politics and law. I so thought that made the, his account particularly attractive. So it's a uh, associative and dignitarian account of, of obligations of resistance. And so, um, yeah. To, to be brief, Dworkin argues that uh, special obligations are all grounded. So the uh, obligations we are um, we have in virtue of our roles, like other moral requirements, they are all grounded in dignity and um, dignity prohibits subordination and domination, and it's especially important in the case of political association. So he, he, he derives uh, the duty to obey the law from the internal character of the political relationship, um, and, and which both forbids subordination and forbids um, domination. So it requires this kind of... Uh, equality this moral and political equality um and it must be structured in this equal way, so as not to compromise dignity one way or another right through domination or through subordination um so so the question i ask in that chapter is what does a person owe herself and others in the face of a polity's failure to treat her or some others as an equal and valuable member and the answer is that uh when is that political membership in conjunction with dignity supports a general obligation to resist one's and other's violations of dignity. So um, the scope and the content of this general obligation of resistance depends on the kind and the magnitude of indignity that is threatened and on the agent's abilities, opportunities, and particular position relative to this indignity. But I looked at kind of four related purposes of resistance, which are rectification, communication, assertion, and solidarity. So these are, um, they don't necessarily involve disobedience, but I think what's uh, uh, distinctive in that chapter is that I look at, um, what may be um, undignified conduct um, that seem to um, not properly reflect the dignity of the agents engaged in them, like the dirty protests in Northern Ireland. And I think that they can very well be justified on the basis of dignity and this uh, affirmation of one's dignity against uh, violations thereof.
2: So so we live in an interesting time uh where the term resist has been thrown about. It's and, been hashtagged. And it's been hashtagged and, uh, and as a libertarian who's long had a problem with many things the government does, I'm I'm in favor of people resisting the government in many things. But when someone reads your book, do you kind of hope that, that the citizens will decide to spend all their time fighting injustice in this modern time? Is that is that a, a goal of yours possibly or or just clarifying when they are allowed to?
1: oh yeah I mean I don't think it would be dangerous for people to read my book no
2: uh, <laughs> <laughs> no that's no, not, it's not be dangerous but you know they might go out and and, and start riding in the streets yeah, or something
1: right so mm. the I mean the problem is the problem of course is identifying the the principle and the cause of resistance right so I believe that there are right causes and wrong causes and of course i i i, I do care about respecting everyone's individual agency, which is why I have this chapter on the second order duties uh, uh, on exercising due care uh, in um, in deliberation and information and so on. So I I would love for people to think that it's their duty and not just an activity they might undertake uh, once every four years, you know, to um, um, have a say in um, the the in the um, arrangements of their country. But um, certainly, I don't. I mean, I, I would want, the, especially the uncivil disobedience, uh, to be directed at the right cause and not undertaken for you know white nationalist purposes.
0: Thanks for listening. Free Thoughts is produced by Tess Terrible. If you enjoy Free Thoughts, please subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.